Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today is our Pali Canon in English study group where we study the words of the Buddha in this book series titled The Words of the Buddha, The Path to Enlightenment Revealing the Hidden. Today we're in volume 11 and we're going to be studying chapters 71 through 80. What we're going to be doing is displaying these chapters on the screen and there'll be a student who will actually read each chapter and then I'll share any teachings on that specific chapter to help you. And then I'll open up to any questions that you guys might have. Some students who've been joining regularly, they will read these books prior to class and then they might have questions as they come to class. Other students that maybe you're joining us for the first time, you might not actually have read these chapters yet. So you may need to download these books in the future and then actually read them prior to class and come to class with any questions. But if you're joining us for the first time, I'd like to welcome you. I'd like to welcome anybody who is maybe also joining us regularly. I'd like to welcome all of you to the class so that we can join together and learn and study the words of the Buddha. So usually we'll start this class with a meditation and then we'll go into the reading and the teaching and open up to questions but today we have some chapters that are fairly long so we're going to skip over the meditation and go right into the reading starting with chapter 71. so once again i'd like to welcome all of you to our class today and if you're joining for the first time no worries because we're going to be displaying these chapters on the screen and you'll be able to study right along with us and then in the future as i mentioned you'll be able to download these by going to buddhadailywisdom.com and then from there if you go to free books you'll be able to download each volume i always suggest starting with volume one but you can also start with where we're at in this program as well which is volume 11. and these programs they repeat our group learning program on Sunday and Wednesday, that's studying volume one. And then the class here on Saturday, we study volumes two through 13, and we happen to be in volume 11 now. So I'll turn things over to all of you guys, specifically the moderators, and we'll go ahead and get started with our class. Okay, thank you, sir. Uh, I will begin with the first reading. Chapter 71, Three Bases of Meritorious Activity. Monks, there are these three bases of meritorious activity, which is generating wholesome karma. What three? The bases of meritorious activity consisting in giving, the bases of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, and the bases of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. 
Here, monks, someone has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a limited extent. He has practiced the basis of, of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a limited extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn among the humans in an unfavorable condition. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a middling extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a middling extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn among humans in a favorable condition. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, his reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. There, the four great kings who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior surpassed the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings in ten respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, flavors, and physical objects. Someone else, <clears throat> someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, excuse me, insisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent, but he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Tavatimsa, heavenly beings. There, Saka, ruler of the heavenly beings, who had practiced supremely <clears throat> the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses the Tavatimsa, heavenly beings, in ten respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, <laughs> heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. <clears throat> Someone else <clears throat> has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body, after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Yama heavenly beings. Excuse me for just a moment. There, the young heavenly beings, Sayama, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in virtuous behavior, 
surpasses the Yama heavenly beings in ten respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority. And in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the Dusita heavenly beings. <clears throat> there the young heavenly being the Santosita, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity, consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses the Dusita heavenly beings in 10 respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority. <clears throat> and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who excite in creation. There, the young heavenly being Sunamita, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior surpasses the heavenly beings who study in creation in ten respects. <clears throat> in heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sorry about this, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. Finally, someone else has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving to a superior extent. He has practiced the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior to a superior extent. But he has not undertaken the basis of meritorious activity consisting in meditative development. With the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. There, the young heavenly being Vasavati, who had practiced supremely the basis of meritorious activity consisting in giving and the basis of meritorious activity consisting in virtuous behavior, surpasses the heavenly beings who control what is created by others in 10 respects. In heavenly lifespan, heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority, and in heavenly forms, sounds, odors, flavors, and physical objects. These monks are the three bases of meritorious activity. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here the Buddha is describing this increased qualities that one experiences in the heavenly realm based on practices that they're performing here in terms of generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. 
This is called the way of practice. I introduced this in the group learning program where I talk about on a daily basis, what is a practitioner that is aspiring to attain enlightenment doing? Of course, there's the eightfold path, which is the path to enlightenment. But then what are you looking at in a more detailed sense is those three aspects of practice, practicing generosity, being willing to give and share of your time, effort, energy, and resources. So when you're walking into a building and you open the door for yourself, you happen to notice there's someone behind you, oh, why not hold it a little bit longer and let somebody in? That's generosity. And there's lots of ways that we can practice generosity. So a practitioner who's aspiring to attain enlightenment and definitely an enlightened being is going to be practicing generosity in multiple ways throughout their day. And then they're going to be practicing this virtuous behavior or wholesome moral conduct. This is right speech, right action, and right livelihood. That's part of the full path. So as you investigate those teachings, then you understand how to practice virtuous behavior or moral conduct. And then you're practicing meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation and loving kindness meditation based on what you need in your practice. This is called the way of practice. These are the daily things that you're doing in addition to everything else that the Buddha teaches, but this is kind of boiling it down to just three simple things that you can really focus on, particularly early in practice. These are three helpful things for you to really focus on early in practice rather than trying to kind of conquer the mountain all at one time. You can just focus on practicing generosity, practicing right speech, right action, right livelihood, and meditation. This really simplifies it for you. As you build that up, then you're able to start to expand and practice some more and more of the teachings. Here he's explaining that someone who's practicing these things, aside from meditation, how the rebirth is being affected based on the gamma or based on the decisions that you make. All that rebirth stuff, while it's interesting, while it can be helpful to understand, what I would suggest a practitioner do is really glean out of this those three activities, generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. All of these different types of beings and where one is going to be reborn versus another, this isn't something that you need to memorize. You have it right here in a book. And taking on that level of memorization is only going to burden the mind when really what you need to be focused on are things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, the natural law of gamma, what is merit, the three poisons, you know, things like this, the Brahma Viharas, uh, the 10 fetters, the seven factors of enlightenment, doing extensive meditation training. These are the things that a practitioner would really be focused on. So these things about rebirth, you can understand them, you can read them and understand how your practice of generosity, moral conduct, and meditation are leading to an improved rebirth if you don't get to enlightenment in this life. But the goal would actually be to get to enlightenment, you know, not be reborn in the human world, not be reborn into the heavenly realm or any of the other lower realms. So you can take something like this and you can boil it down to what do I need to do right now in order to get to enlightenment? Because the same things that lead to an improved rebirth is also what leads to enlightenment. Or another way to say that is all the things that lead to enlightenment, if you fall short, are going to lead to an improved rebirth. So rather than focusing on where you may or may not be reborn, which is in the future, instead focus right now, what do I need to be doing right now?
generosity, moral conduct, and meditation. This is what a practitioner is going to be doing in order to move the mind closer and closer to enlightenment on a daily basis. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Doesn't appear that we have any questions on this one, sir. All right. So we'll move to chapter 72. Okay. Miranda, would you like to take that? Yes, sir. <clears throat> the generous one would surpass the other. Here, venerable sir, there might be two dis disciples of the perfectly enlightened one, equal in confidence, virtuous behavior, moral conduct, and wisdom. But one is generous while the other is not. With the breakup of the body after death, they would both be reborn in a good destination in a heavenly world. When they have become heavenly beings, would there be any distinction or difference between them? There would be, Sumana, the perfectly enlightened one said, the generous one, having become a heavenly being, would surpass the other in five ways. In heavenly lifespan, <clears throat> heavenly beauty, heavenly happiness, heavenly glory, and heavenly authority. The generous one, having become a heavenly being, would surpass the other in these five ways. But, venerable sir, if these two pass away from there and again become human beings, would there still be some distinction or difference between them? There would be, Sumana, the perfectly enlightened one said. When they again become human beings, the generous one would surpass the other in five ways. In human lifespan, human beauty, human happiness, human fame, and human authority. When they again become human beings, the generous one would surpass the other in these five ways. But, venerable sir, if these two should go forth from the household life into homelessness, would there still be some distinction or difference between them? There would be, Sumana, the perfectly enlightened one said. The generous one, having gone forth, would surpass the other in five ways. He would usually use a robe that has been specifically offered to him, seldom one that had not been specifically offered to him. He would usually eat alms food that has been specifically offered to him, seldom alms food that had not been specifically offered to him. He would usually use a lodging that had been specifically offered to him, seldom one that had not been specifically offered to him. He would usually use medicines and supplies for the sick that had been specifically offered to him, seldom those that had not been specifically offered to him. His fellow monastics, those with whom he resides, would usually behave toward him in agreeable ways by bodily, verbal, and mental action, seldom in disagreeable ways. They would usually present him what is agreeable, seldom what is disagreeable. The generous one, having gone forth, would surpass the other in these five ways. But, venerable sir, if both attain arhatship, would there still be some distinction or difference between them after they have attained arhatship? In this case, Sumana, I declare, there would be no difference between the liberation of one and the liberation of the other. It's outstanding and amazing, venerable sir. Truly, one has good reason to give alms, a donation, and do meritorious deeds, since they will be helpful if one becomes a heavenly being, again becomes a human being, or goes forth. So it is, Sumana, so it is, Sumana. Truly, one has good reason to give alms, 
and do meritorious deeds, since they will be helpful if one becomes a heavenly being, again becomes a human being, or goes forth. This is what the perfectly enlightened one said. Having said this, the fortunate one, the teacher, further said this. As the stainless moon moving through the sphere of space outshines with its radiance all the stars in the world, so one accomplished in virtuous behavior, a person endowed with confidence outshines by generosity all the selfish people in the world. As the hundred peak rain cloud thundering, covered in lightning, pours down rain upon the earth, overwhelming the plains and the lowlands, so the perfectly enlightened one's disciple, the wise one accomplished in vision, surpasses the selfish person in five specific respects. Life-spanning glory, beauty and peacefulness, possessed well after death, regardless in heaven. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here, the Buddha is really talking about generosity because his students asked him the question about generosity and understanding how that affects one's rebirth and what you can expect in that particular rebirth. If you remember back to the natural law of gamma, the Buddha talks about gamma is experienced in three ways, either in this very life, in the next rebirth or on some subsequent occasion which means some future rebirth so here he's explaining the gamma as it relates to generosity that we experience our generosity in this life the next life or some subsequent life and he's showing you how the practice of generosity is helping you in these future rebirths now remember the goal is to not be reborn and to not be reborn in heaven even though he's talking about rebirth in heaven not that heaven's a bad place or anything but the goal would be to get to enlightenment in this life so that there's no rebirth anywhere if there is rebirth in the heavenly realm and one is in the third stage of enlightenment as a non-returner they will attain enlightenment in that next rebirth from going from the human realm as a non-returner they will be reborn in heaven and then attain enlightenment there but there's other ways to get to the heavenly realm besides just attaining the third stage of enlightenment so if beings are being reborn into the heavenly realm they're still experiencing their gamma they still haven't attained enlightenment and they can be reborn out of the heavenly realm back to human as is being discussed here in this particular teaching but generosity that you practice, the giving and sharing without any expectation of anything in return, without any selfish desire. So sometimes someone might be generous to one person, but not to another, because maybe somebody wants something from this person and feels like, all right, let me be generous to this person just to get what I want. But what you need to develop your practice to is where you're generous with everybody and anybody without any expectation of anything in return. And this doesn't mean that you go around giving people everything, that you know, people that you see, but just in your daily life, have this interest in giving and sharing, whether it's your time, effort, energy, or resources as you can. But remember, you always need to practice the middle way with generosity, that if you're craving to practice it and you're just give, 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 then you're not going to have the basic necessities that you need to sustain life. But also, if you never practice generosity, the mind is still selfish. It still has the stain of selfishness, this craving, desire, attachment. So what generosity is doing as you practice the middle way is helping you to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. 
And one of the things that the Buddha talks about in his teachings is how generosity was the key thing that he practiced in his current life and all of his previous lives, which actually helped result in him being able to practice to the point where he attained enlightenment in his last life as a Buddha. So he talks about, of course, the whole path to enlightenment with meditation and all these other things that he did in order to get to enlightenment in his last life. But he says his ability to do that on his own was the accumulation of generosity over countless, you know, many lifetimes. So generosity is a really important aspect of our practice and sometimes tends to be very difficult and challenging for people because we tend to hold on to either our material possessions or our wealth or our time or our effort or energy. And we need to be willing to use our energy for the benefit of others without any expectation of anything in return. But then always remember that you need to take care of your goals, your objectives, your interests as well. And this is where you need to make balanced decisions. And only you're going to know in a given day or a given time of where that is for you. And that's going to adjust and change over time as your energy levels go up and down, as your health is maybe up and down, as you age, as your money and your income goes up and down. You're going to see that you're going to need to kind of keep your eye on this and just be aware of what you can and can't do and just gradually ensure that you're interested in practicing to the point where you're willing to give and share without any expectation of anything in return. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? It looks like we have no questions this time, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 73. Okay. A simile describing the happiness of heaven. A wise man who has given himself over to wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind on the dissolution of the body after death reappears in a happy destination, even in heaven. Were it rightly speaking to be said of anything, that is entirely wished for, entirely desired, entirely agreed, it is of heaven that, rightly speaking, this should be said, so much so that it is hard to finish describing the happiness of heaven. But, venerable sir, <clears throat> can a simile be given? It can, monk. The perfectly enlightened one said, Monks, suppose that a wheel-turning monarch possessed the seven treasures and the four kinds of success, and because of that, experienced pleasure and happiness. What are the seven treasures? First, here, when a head of anointed noble king has bathed his head on the Uposatha day of the 15th, and has ascended to the upper palace chamber, the Upasatha. There appears to him the divine wheel treasure with the thousand spokes, its tire, and its hub, completely in every aspect. On seeing it, the head-anointed noble king thinks thus. Now it has been heard by me that when a head-anointed noble king has bathed his head on the Upasatha day of the 15th, and has ascended to the upper palace chamber for the thousand spokes at its tire and its hub, complete in every aspect. Then what king becomes a wheel, that king becomes a wheel-turning monarch. Am I then a wheel-turning monarch? Then the head-anointed noble king rises from his seat, and taking a water vessel in his left hand, 
he sprinkles the wheel treasure with his right hand, saying, Turn forward, turn good wheel treasure, triumph, good wheel treasure. When the wheel treasure turns forward, rolling in the eastern direction, and the wheel turning monarch follows it with his four constituent army, constituent army. Now in whatever region the wheel treasure treasure uh, pauses, there the wheel turning monarch takes up residence with his four constituent army, and opposing kings in the eastern direction come from the wheel turning monarch and speak thus, come great king, welcome great king, command great king, advise great king. The wheel turning monarch speaks thus, you should not kill living beings, you should not take what has not been given. You should not misconduct yourselves in sensual pleasures. You should not speak falsehood. You should not drink intoxicants, which are substances that cause heedlessness. You should eat what you are accustomed to eating. And the opposing kings in the eastern direction submit to the wheel-turning monarch. Then the wheel-treasure plunges into the eastern ocean and emerges again. And then it turns, forward rolling in the southern direction. And the opposing kings in the southern direction submit to the wheel-turning monarch. Then the wheel-treasure plunges into the southern ocean and emerges again. And then it turns forward, rolling in the western direction. And the opposing kings in the western direction submit to the wheel-turning monarch. Then the wheel-treasure plunges into the western ocean and uh, emerges again. And then it turns forward rolling in the northern direction. And the opposing kings in the northern direction submit to the wheel turning monarch. Now, when the wheel treasure has triumphed over the earth to the ocean's edge, it returns to the royal capital and remains as if fixed on its axle at the gate of the wheel turning monarch's inner palace, as a decoration to the gate of his inner palace. Such is the wheel treasure that appears to the wheel turning monarch. Second, again, the elephant treasure appears to the wheel-turning monarch, all white with seven-fold stance with supernormal power, flying through the air, the king of elephants named Uputsatha. When seeing him, the wheel-turning monarch's mind has confidence in him thus. It would be wonderful to ride the elephant if he could undergo taming. Then the elephant treasure undergoes taming just like a fine thoroughbred elephant, well tamed for a long time. And it so happens that the wheel-turning monarch, when testing the elephant treasure, mounts him in the morning, and after traveling the whole earth to the edge of the ocean, he returns to the royal capital to take his morning meal. Such is the elephant treasure that appears to the wheel-turning monarch. Three. Again, the horse treasure appears to the wheel-turning monarch, all white, with raven-black head, with mane like munja grass, with supernormal power, flying through the air, the king of horses named Valhaka, or Thundercloud. On seeing him, the wheel-turning monarch's mind has confidence in him thus. It would be wonderful to ride the horse if he would undergo taming. Then the horse, would the horse treasure undergoes taming, just like a fine thoroughbred horse, well tamed for a long time. And it so happens that the wheel-turning monarch, 
when testing the horse treasure mounts him in the morning and after traveling to the whole earth to the edge of the ocean he returns to the royal capital to take his morning meal such is the horse treasure that appears to a wheel turning monarch four again the tre jewel treasure appears to the wheel turning monarch and jewel is fine barrel mineral which is a mineral composed of ber beryllium aluminum i'm not to pronounce this <laughs> a rare stone a purest water eight faceted and well cut now the radiance of the jewel treasure spreads around for a whole league and it so happens that when the wheel turning monarch is testing the jewel treasure he draws up his four constituent army in formation and mounting the jewel on top of the banner he sets forth in the darkness and gloom of the night with all the inhabitants of the villages nearby again begin their work by its light thinking that it is day such as the jewel treasure that appears to a well-turning monarch. And I would like to hand this over to Miranda, if you would, please. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Five. Again, the woman treasure appears to the wheel-turning monarch, beautiful, comely, and graceful, possessing the supreme beauty of complexion, neither too tall nor too short, neither too slim nor too stout, neither too dark nor too fair surpassing human beauty without reaching divine beauty. The touch of the woman treasure is such that it is like a cluster of kapok or a cluster of cotton wool. When it is cool, her limbs are warm. When it is warm, her limbs are cool. From her body, the scent of sandalwood comes forth and from her mouth, the scent of lotuses. She rises before the wheel turning monarch and retires after him. She's eager to serve, agreeable in conduct, and sweet in speech. Since she is never lacking confidence to the wheel-turning monarch, <clears throat> even in thought, how could she be so in body? Such is the woman treasure that appears to a wheel-turning monarch. Six. Again, the steward treasure appears to the wheel-turning monarch. The divine eye, third eye, born of past action, is established in him, whereby he sees hidden stores of treasure, both with owners and ownerless. He approaches the wheel-turning monarch and says, Sir, you remain at ease. I shall take care of your monetary affairs. And it so happens that when the wheel-turning monarch is tested, is testing, excuse me, the steward treasure, he boards a boat, and putting out into the river Ganges, in midstream, he tells the steward treasure, I need gold and bullion, steward. Then, sir, let the boat be steered towards one bank. Steward, it is actually here that I need gold and bullion. Then the steward treasure plunges both hands into the water and draws up a pot full of gold and bullion. And he tells the wheel-turning monarch, is this enough, sir? Is enough done, enough offered? This is enough, steward. Enough is done. Enough offered. Such is the steward treasure that appears to a wheel-turning monarch. Seven. Again, the counselor treasure appears to the wheel-turning monarch, wise, knowledgeable, and a good decision-maker, capable of getting the wheel-turning monarch to promote that which is worthy of being promoted, to dismiss that which should be dismissed, and to establish that which should be established. He approaches the wheel-turning monarch and says, Sir, you remain at ease. I shall govern. Such is the counselor treasure that appears to a wheel-turning monarch. 
These are the seven treasures that a wheel-turning monarch possesses. What are the four kinds of success? One, here, a wheel-turning monarch is handsome, attractive, and graceful, possessing the supreme beauty of complexion, and he surpasses other human beings in that respect. This is the first kind of success that a wheel-turning monarch possesses. Two, again, a wheel-turning monarch lives long and endures long, and he surpasses other human beings in that respect. This is the second kind of success that a wheel-turning monarch possesses. Three, again, a wheel-turning monarch is free from illness and affliction, possessing a good digestion that is neither too cool nor too warm, and he surpasses other human beings in that respect. This is the third kind of success that a wheel-turning monarch possesses. Again, a wheel-turning monarch is dear and agreeable to Brahmins and householders. Just as a father is dear and agreeable to his children, so too a wheel-turning monarch is dear and agreeable to Brahmins and householders. Brahmins and householders too are dear and agreeable to a wheel-turning monarch. Just as children are dear and agreeable to a father, so too Brahmins and householders are dear and agreeable to a wheel-turning monarch. Once a wheel-turning monarch was driving in a pleasure park with his four constituent army, then Brahmins and householders went to him and spoke thus, Sir, drive slowly so that we may see you longer. And so he told his charioteer, driver, Charioteer, drive slowly that I may see the Brahmins and householders longer. This is the fourth kind of success that a wheel-turning monarch possesses. These are the four kinds of success that a wheel-turning monarch possesses. What do you think, monks? Would a wheel-turning monarch experience pleasure and happiness because of possessing these seven treasures and these four kinds of success? Venerable sir, a wheel-turning monarch would experience pleasure and happiness because of possessing even one treasure, let alone seven treasures and four kinds of success. Then, taking a small stone the size of his hand, the perfectly enlightened one addressed the monks thus, What do you think, monks? Which is the greater? This small stone that I have taken the size of my hand, or Himalaya, the king of mountains? Venerable sir, the small stone that the perfectly enlightened one has taken, the size of his hand, is minimal beside Himalaya, the king of mountains. It is not even a fraction. There is no comparison. So too, monks, the pleasure and happiness that a wheel-turning monarch would experience because of possessing the seven treasures and the four kinds of success is minimal beside the happiness of heaven. It is not even a fraction. There is no comparison. If, some time or another, at the end of a long, long period, the wise man comes back to the human state, it is into a high family that he is reborn into a family of well-to-do nobles, or well-to-do Brahmins, or well-to-do householders, one that is rich, of great wealth, of great possessions, with abundant gold and silver, with abundant assets and means, and with abundant money and grain. He is handsome, attractive and graceful, possessing the supreme beauty of complexion. He obtains food and drink, clothes, vehicles, garlands, scents and ointments, bed, <coughs> lodging and love. He conducts himself well in body, speech, and mind, and having done so, on the dissolution of the body after death, he reappears in a happy destination, even in the heavenly world. Monks, suppose a gambler at the 
at the very first lucky throw, won a great fortune. Yet a lucky throw such as that is insignificant. It is a far more lucky throw when a wise man who conducts himself well in body, speech, and mind on dissolution of the body after death reappears on a happy destination even in the heavenly world. This is the complete perfection of the wise man's condition. All right. Thank you, Rick and Miranda. Very long chapter here. So all of this reading and all of this chapter, what you can boil it down to is understanding that beings in the heavenly realm are experiencing an enormous amount of happiness. This is those pleasant feelings of discontentedness. They don't experience painful feelings or neither painful nor pleasant. The Buddha explains it as exclusively pleasant feelings. And here he's explaining just how pleasant it is. It's it's incomparable to all these other things that he just described. So he's explained this whole story in order to help one to understand that this happiness in heaven is just unsurmountable to it's just an enormous amount of happiness and this is why heavenly beings oftentimes do not learn and practice in order to attain enlightenment because they lack motivation they lack the painful feelings that we experience here in the human realm and they lack those neither painful nor pleasant feelings so they oftentimes are lacking the motivation they're just experiencing such great pleasure so oftentimes heavenly beings are reborn back into the human realm or perhaps even into the lower realms and thus they're continuously in the cycle of rebirth so the goal would not be to be reborn in heaven because there's the potential that a being getting into the heavenly realm would lack the motivation and become very complacent and thus not actually apply the dedication and effort and energy to learn and practice in order to get to enlightenment so what questions do you guys have on this chapter I'm not seeing any at this time, sir. I see Ali raised her hand. You might not see oh, that. I'm sorry, I did not see that come up. Go mm -hmm. ahead, Ali. Thank you. Thank you, teacher David. Thank you, Rick. Um, I, okay, so when the Christian, they talk about when they die, they go to heaven. It's this heaven here, right? Yes, it's the same heaven. Oh, okay. So, um, because when we, I mean, if we just practice generosity, then the chance of when we're dying after that, that we will go to heaven. It's generosity and improved moral conduct that the Buddha describes is what gets one to heaven. So if we weren't practicing the wholesome moral conduct, like you said in the previous chapter, then it's going to be potential rebirth back into the heavenly realm. So if we're only practicing generosity and moral conduct to a kind of lesser extent, then that is typically rebirth back into the human realm and maybe an unfavorable condition. But by practicing the generosity and moral conduct to a middle extent, that's where we start to now see this improved rebirth. And especially when you get to practicing generosity and moral conduct to a superior extent, that's where we really see rebirth into the heavenly realm. Mm, okay, so I mean, for it sounds like in the heavenly realm, um, it's not as a good place to practice it is am i right like earth is more um 
it's a better place to practice, right? There's more motivation in the human realm. So the heavenly realm is right here as well. We talk about it as realm, and we usually talk about you know the heavenly realm being way up away from us, but heavenly beings can actually interact with us right here where we are right now. But being in a human existence, there's more motivation because we experience all three feelings of pleasant, painful, neither painful nor pleasant. So that tends to produce more motivation, more encouragement. This dedication, determination, and diligence tends to be arising in the mind as we apply our effort more so than what we experience in the heavenly realm. In the heavenly realm, there's just a lot of complacency because there's so much pleasure there. Right, right. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. I saw that Miranda had her hand up before, but she's taking it down. Miranda, would you still like to ask your question? It was mostly answered um, by Teacher David when he was answering Allie's question, but um, that complacency that you spoke of in the heavenly realm, because there is exclusively pleasant feelings in the heavenly realms, when one is on the path in the human realm, and is working towards enlightenment and maybe starts experiencing the jhanas and things like that where discontentedness is diminished greatly do we need to guard against complacency then too sir because of that diminishing of painful feelings and feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant can that breed complacency there absolutely and i oftentimes will run across students who maybe aren't on the path at all. They just learn some teachings other places and their life is by and large fairly peaceful. They still experience sadness and frustration and irritation, but they're not real extreme and they don't last for very long. So these are beings that are headed towards the heavenly realm. And even here in their human existence, they're experiencing diminished discontentedness. And you get that when you get into the jhanas and into the first stage of enlightenment as well. You know, as you're progressing, discontentedness diminishes. So you've got to guard against the mind becoming complacent as that is happening. And if you aren't on this path yet and you're just coming across these teachings for the first time and your life is pretty peaceful but yet you're still experiencing some degree of discontentedness that means the mind's not enlightened but once again you should realize that your mind can oftentimes become complacent and like ah oh, why don't why should i do that work to get to enlightenment because my life's pretty peaceful and maybe there's discontentedness that arises once a month or once every two or three months and this can be a person who's not actually learned and practiced these teachings because they may have learned a practice in the previous lives. They may be, have been heavenly beings in the past and they've been reborn here in the human realm. So they have a certain amount of wisdom and a certain amount of happiness in this life, in their human life. So the being is still stuck in the cycle of rebirth if, as we get to the jhanas and the first and second stages of enlightenment and so forth. We're still stuck in this cycle of rebirth. And if we're not on this path and we're experiencing any degree of discontentedness, we're still stuck in the cycle of rebirth. It's important to get to a point where you completely obliterate or destroy those 10 fetters so that then there's no more rebirth in any realm whatsoever. And then you can experience that peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy for the rest of this life. And once the mind's enlightened, you know, some people describe it as 
you know, like being in heaven. I mean, you're, it's not like being in heaven because you're not experiencing conditioned, pleasant feelings. But some people talk about how peaceful and joyful the mind is in the enlightened mental state. And they imagine that, okay, you know, if I was in heaven, it must be like this. But in reality, enlightenment itself is actually better than the heavenly realm because the heavenly realm they're still experiencing discontentedness those pleasant feelings exclusively and that's where the complacency comes in so yes as you're progressing or if you're off this path you've never learned before your life is pretty peaceful you still need to arise this enlightenment factor of investigation the enlightenment factor of energy and the enlightenment factor of joy so that you can then practice diligence and determination as you decide to learn and practice this path otherwise you're just continuing to stay stuck in the cycle of rebirth even though things are fairly peaceful yes thank you sir Mm -hmm. you're welcome um it seems this has brought up a couple of questions on facebook Uh, lindsay reiner asks if the heavenly realm doesn't have as much of a motivation because of all the pleasant feelings there Why would they even want to reach enlightenment there? That's the whole challenge. That's the whole issue. The whole problem is that because the beings are experiencing such pleasant feelings, happiness, excitement, elation, thrill, euphoria, any of those feelings that we experience in this human realm, what the Buddha is explaining in the simile is that they're experiencing way more pleasure than anything we've ever experienced here in the human realm. So they have complacency and they're not even interested to get to enlightenment because they're just experiencing so much pleasantness, so much happiness. And that's the difficulty of being reborn there. You know, And this is where some people that aspire to be reborn in heaven, if they don't know what is being described here about the complacency they're actually setting themselves up to fail there's some people who are very eager to be reborn in heaven and they think that that's actually the goal or they think that that's desirable but in reality it's just continuing to stay in the cycle of rebirth because there's a lack of motivation there and, and beings aren't even interested necessarily to get to enlightenment other than the non-returners the non-returners who have been in the human realm they've progressed up to the third stage of enlightenment they understand so when they get to the heavenly realm they do the rest of the work that they need to do in order to get to enlightenment but beings that aren't in the third stage of enlightenment those beings that are being reborn in the heavenly realm from just maybe practicing generosity and improved moral conduct and certain simple things like this, but they're not in the third stage of enlightenment. They don't have as deep of wisdom as someone who's in the third stage of enlightenment. So those beings that are entering into the heavenly realm that are just practicing generosity and some improved moral conduct, they're going to go there, experience all this pleasure. They have this very long lifespan. They're not working on enlightenment and they're going to get reborn into another realm and everything just continues and continues and continues. And they're going to ultimately need to get into the the human realm potentially and experience all the challenges and struggles and tribulations that we experience here all over again and again and again and again until they cultivate enough wisdom to get to enlightenment. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. She also asks, also, 
You may have covered this before and I just missed it. I know it's impermanent there as well, so do these beings die eventually or choose to move on from the heavenly realm? Yes, that's an impermanent existence as well. So those beings will die. They have a very long lifespan, but they will die and they will be reborn if they don't get to enlightenment. They have the opportunity to get to enlightenment. It's capable, it's possible to get to enlightenment in the heavenly realm. But if they don't, then they're going to be reborn into another realm after their lifespan is ended in the heavenly realm. Thank you, sir. And then um, Tonka asks, is it just the end of this life that counts how wholesome, con how wholesome conduct is, regardless of earlier misconduct through life? Yes. Yeah, so if we've done all kinds of horrible, horrible things in the past, which I'm sure some of us have done, I know I have, then all of that is in the past. You can actually improve your conduct now. And then based on the condition of the mind at the time of death, that's what determines if there's rebirth and in what realm and what condition there's rebirth. So you're not judged on the totality of what you've done in life because there's no being that's going to be doing that. You know, this being of God that some of us understand, that's not God's role. God's not looking over our life and everything that we've done and judging us and sending us to a good place or a bad place. Instead, it's just this natural uh, laws of existence, the cycle of rebirth, cause and effect, cause and effect, action, result, action, result. And as we get to the end of our life, whatever the condition of our mind is at that point, that's what determines our rebirth. So if you've done unfortunate things in the past and you now clean that up, there's no reason why you can't get to enlightenment in this life. But if you fall short of that, then there's improved rebirth in the human realm and there's improved rebirth into the heavenly realm if that's where you end up being. But it's based on the condition of the mind at the time of death, not the totality of everything that you've done. During the lifetime of the Buddha, there was a particular individual who had murdered 999 people. And he was actually getting ready to murder the Buddha as the 1,000th individual. And the Buddha was very wise and handled this conversation really well. And that individual ended up ordaining to become a monk with the Buddha. And ultimately, he got to enlightenment during that life. So I know that there's nobody alive today that has murdered 999 human beings. I just don't think that that's possible for somebody nowadays to have gotten away with that for that long of a period. We just have too many people that are too aware. We have too much technology that there's nobody that has murdered more than 999 people. So if this person can get to enlightenment during the lifetime of the Buddha, no matter what we've done in our existing life, there's no reason why we can't get to enlightenment in this life if we put time, effort, energy, and resources towards accomplishing the goal, remaining dedicated and remaining diligent. Yes, thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. That's all the questions that are on uh, Facebook and YouTube right now, sir. All right. And the same Zoom, yeah. Okay, so that means we go to the next chapter, which is chapter 74. Okay. <clears throat> Great fruit and benefit of the noble ones who put Satha observance. There are Visaka, three kinds of Upasathas. What three? The cattle workers' Upasatha, the Nagandhas' Upasatha, and the noble ones' Upasatha. 
And how Visaka is the cattle workers Upasatha observed? Suppose Visaka in the evening a cattle worker returns the cows to their owners. He reflects thus, today the cows grazed in such and such a place and drank water in such and such a place. Tomorrow the cows will graze in such and such a place and drink water in such and such a place. So too, someone here observing the Upasatha reflects thus, today I ate this and that food. Today I ate a meal of this and that kind. Tomorrow I will eat this and that food. Tomorrow I will eat a meal of this and that kind. He thereby passes the day with craving, greed, and longing in his mind. It is in such a way that the cattle, worker, the cattle worker's upasatha is observed. The cattle worker's upasatha, thus observed, is not of great fruit and benefit, nor is it extraordinarily brilliant and extensive. And how Visaka is the Nigantha's Upasatha observed? There are Visaka aesthetics called Nigantha's. They urge their disciples thus, come good man, lay down the rod toward living beings residing more than a hundred Yujanas, which is about 12 to 15 kilometers distance in the Eastern quarter. Lay down the rod toward living beings residing more than a hundred Yujanas distance in the Western quarter. Lay down the rod toward living beings residing more than a hundred Yujanas distance from the Northern quarter. Lay down the rod toward living beings residing more than a hundred Yujanas distance in the Southern quarter. Thus, they urge them to be sympathetic and compassionate towards some living beings, but not to others. On the Upasatha day, they urged their disciples thus, Come, good man, having laid aside all clothes, recite, I am not anywhere the belonging of anyone, nor is there anywhere anything in any place that is mine. However, his parents know, this is our son, and he knows these are my parents. His wife, his wife and children know. He is our supporter and he knows. These are my wife and children. His slaves, workers, and servants know. He is our master. And he knows these are my slaves, workers, and servants. Thus on an occasion when they should be urged in truthfulness, the Nagantas urged them in false speech. This I say is false speech. Then when that night has passed, he makes, us, he makes use of possessions that are being not given. This, I say, is taking what has not been given. It is in such a way that the Naganthas Upasatha is observed. When one has observed the Upasatha in the way of the Naganthas, the Upasatha is not of great fruit and benefit, nor is extraordinarily brilliant and extensive. And how Visaka is the noble one's Upasatha observed? The defiled mind is cleansed by effort. And now is the defiled mind cleared by, how is the defiled mind cleared, cleansed by effort? Here Visaka, a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata thus, the perfectly enlightened one is an Arahant, perfectly enlightened, accomplished in true wisdom and conduct, fortune, knower of the world, unsurpassed trainer of persons to be tamed, 
teacher of heavenly beings and humans, the enlightened one, the perfectly enlightened one. When a noble disciple recollects the Tathagata, his, his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that one's head, when dirty, is cleansed by effort. At Halvasaka, does one cleanse a dirty head by effort? By means of cleansing paste, clay, water, and the appropriate effort by the person, it is in such a way that one's head, when dirty, is cleansed by effort. So, too, the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. This is called a noble disciple who observes the Upasatha of Brahma, or God, who resides together with God. And, is by, and it is by considering God that his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. The defiled mind, Visakha, is cleansed by effort. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by effort? Here, Visakha, a noble disciple recollects uh, the teachings of thus. The teachings are well expounded by the perfectly enlightened one, directly visible, immediate, inviting one to come and see, applicable to be personally experienced by the wise. When a noble disciple recollects, in other words, recalls or remembers the teachings, his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that one's body, when dirty, is cleansed by effort. And how does Sapa, does one cleanse a dirty body by effort? By means of a bathing brush, lime powder, water, and the appropriate effort by the person, it is in such a way that one's body, when dirty, is cleansed by effort. So too, the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. This is called a noble disciple who observes the Upasatha of the teachings, who resides together with the teachings, and it is by considering the teachings and it is, that his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. The defiled mind Visakha, is cleansed by effort. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by effort? Here, Visakha, a noble disciple recollects the community thus. The community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is practicing the good way, practicing the straight way, practicing the true way, practicing the proper way. That is, four pairs of persons, the eight types of individuals, this community of the perfectly enlightened one's disciples is worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respectful salutation. The unsurpassed field of merit for the world, when a noble disciple recollects the community, his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that a dirty cloth is cleansed by effort. And how, Visakha, does one cleanse a dirty cloth by effort? By means of heat, lye, cow dung, water, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that a dirty cloth is cleansed by effort. So, too, the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. This is called a noble disciple who observes the Upasatha of the community, who resides together with the community, and it is by considering the community that his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, 
and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. The defiled mind, Visakha, is cleansed by effort. How is the defiled mind cleansed by effort? Here, Visakha, a noble disciple recollects or recalls, remembers his own virtuous behavior or moral conduct as unbroken, untorn, unblemished, unblotched, liberating, praised by the wise, not misunderstood, and leading to concentration. When a noble disciple recollects, recalls, or remembers his virtuous behavior or moral conduct, his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that a dirty mirror is cleansed by effort. And how Vasaka is a dirty mirror cleansed by effort by means of oil, ashes, roll cloth, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that a dirty mirror is cleansed by effort. So too, the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. This is called a noble disciple who observes the Uvasatha of virtuous behavior or moral conduct, who resides together with virtuous behavior, moral conduct, and it is by considering virtuous behavior that this mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. And I would like to pass the reading off to Miranda. The defiled mind, Visakha, is cleansed by effort. And how is the defiled mind cleansed by effort? Here, Visakha, a noble disciple recollects the heavenly beings thus. There are heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings, Tamatimsa heavenly beings. Yama heavenly beings, Tusita heavenly beings, heavenly beings who excite in creation, heavenly beings who control what is created by others, heavenly being of Brahma's God's company, and heavenly beings still higher than these. I too have such confidence as those heavenly beings possessed because of which, when they passed away from here, they were reborn there. I too have such virtuous behavior as those heavenly beings possessed because of which, when they passed away from here, were reborn there. I too have such learning as those heavenly beings possessed because of which, when they passed away from here, they were reborn there. I too have such generosity as those heavenly beings possessed because of which, when they passed away from here, they were reborn there. I too have such wisdom as those heavenly beings possessed because of which, when they passed away from here, they were reborn there. When a noble disciple recollects confidence, virtuous behavior, learning, generosity, and wisdom in himself and in those heavenly beings, his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned in the same way that impure gold is cleansed by effort. And how, Visakha, is impure gold cleansed by effort? By means of a furnace, salt, red chalk, a blowpipe, and tongs, and the appropriate effort by the person. It is in such a way that impure gold is cleansed by effort. So too, the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. This is called a noble disciple who observes the Upasatha of the heavenly beings, who resides together with the heavenly beings. And it is by considering the heavenly beings that his mind becomes tranquil, joy arises, and the defilements of the mind are abandoned. It is in this way that the defiled mind is cleansed by effort. This noble disciple, Visaka, reflects thus, as long as they live, 
the Arahants abandoned and abstained from the destruction of life, with the rod and weapon laid aside. Diligent and kindly, they reside compassionate toward all living beings. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from the destruction of life, with the rod and weapon laid aside. Diligent and kindly, I too shall reside compassionate toward all living beings. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Ubosatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from taking what is not given. They take only what is given, awaiting only what is given, and are honest at heart, free of theft. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from taking what is not given. I shall accept only what is given, awaiting only what is given, and be honest at heart, free of theft. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, the Arahants abandon sexual activity and observe celibacy, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, the common person's practice. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon sexual activity and observe celibacy, living apart, abstaining from sexual intercourse, the common person's practice. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from false speech. They speak truth, adhere to truth. They are trustworthy and reliable, not deceivers of the world. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from false speech. I shall be a speaker of the truth, an adherent of truth, trustworthy and reliable, not a deceiver of the world. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from liquor, wine, and intoxicants, the basis for heedlessness. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, Arahants eat once a day, abstaining from eating at night and from food outside the proper time. Today, for this night and day, I too shall eat once a day, abstaining from eating at night and from food outside the proper time. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, the Arahants abstain from dancing, singing, instrumental music, and unsuitable shows, and from adorning and beautifying themselves by wearing garlands and applying scents and fragrances. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abstain from dancing, singing, instrumental music, and unsuitable shows, and from adorning and beautifying myself by wearing garlands and applying scents and fragrances. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. As long as they live, the Arahants abandon and abstain from the use of high and luxurious beds. They lay down on a low resting place, either a small bed or a straw mat. Today, for this night and day, I too shall abandon and abstain from the use of high and luxurious beds. I shall lie down on a low resting place, either a small bed or a straw mat. I shall imitate the Arahants in this respect, and the Uposatha will be observed by me. In this way, Visaka, that the Noble One's Uposatha is observed. 
When one has observed the Upasatha in the way of the noble ones, it is of great fruit and benefit, extraordinarily brilliant and extensive. To what extent is it of great fruit and benefit? To what extent is it extraordinarily brilliant and pervasive? Suppose, Visaka, one were to exercise sovereignty and kingship over these 16 great countries abounding in the seven precious substances, that is, the countries of the Angans, the Magadans, the Kasis, the Kosalans, the Vajis, the Malas, the Chetis, the Vangas, the Kurus, the Panchalas, the Machas, the Surasenas, the Asakas, the Avantis, the Gandharans, and the Cambodians. This would not be worth a sixteenth part of the Upasatha observance complete in those eight factors. For what reason? Because human kingship is inferior compared to heavenly happiness. For the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings, a single night and day is equivalent to 50 human years. 30 such days make up a month, and 12 such months make up a year. The lifespan of the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings is 500 such heavenly years. It is possible, Visaka, that a woman or man here who observes the Uposatha complete in these eight factors will, with the breakup of the body after death, be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings ruled by the four great kings. It was with reference to this that I said human kingship is poor compared to heavenly happiness. For the Tavatimsa heavenly beings, a single night and day is equivalent to a hundred human years. Thirty such days make up a month, and twelve such months make up a year. The lifespan of the Tavatimsa heavenly beings is a thousand such heavenly years. For the Yama heavenly beings, a single night and day is equivalent to 200 human years. The lifespan of the Yama heavenly beings is 2,000 such heavenly years. For the Tusita heavenly beings, a single night and day is equivalent to 400 human years. The lifespan of the Tusita heavenly beings is 4,000 such heavenly years. For the heavenly beings who excite in creation, a single night and day is equivalent to 800 human years. The lifespan of the heavenly beings who excite in creation is 8,000 such heavenly years. For the heavenly beings who control what is created by others, a single night and day is equivalent to 1,600 human years. 30 such days make up a month, and 12 such months make up a year. The lifespan of the heavenly beings who control what is created by others is 16,000 such heavenly years. It is possible, Visaka, that a woman or a man here who observes the Uposatha complete in these eight factors will, with the breakup of the body after death, be reborn in companionship with the heavenly beings who control what is created by others. It was with reference to this that I said human kingship is poor compared to heavenly happiness. All right, thank you, Rick and Miranda. Let's first talk about what this Upasaka, or however we're going to pronounce that, Upasata day or observance is. This is actually a day that happens every seven to eight days of our calendar week. During the lifetime of the Buddha, they were observing and keeping track of time based on the lunar calendar. So farmers and rural people and commoners and 
the various lands, they were able to tell time based on the lunar calendar and people knew how to look up at the moon and knew what day it was. So this particular observance or this particular day happens about every seven to eight days. And the Buddha would actually teach on those days. The people would know when those days were based on looking up at the the moon. And then they knew that he would be teaching and they would come to learn with him on those days. So every seven to eight days, he was giving a major discourse. And then during the week, he would be teaching the ordained practitioners who were around him. He would be traveling from house to house, village to village, people who were inviting him and teaching individually. And then on the bigger observances like this, there would be a bigger collection of people that would come together to hear one of his major discourses. So on this particular day, he would encourage practitioners to practice at a higher degree than they might during their normal course of their day or their week. And here he's comparing the observance of this day with cattle workers, with these other aesthetics, and his own students, the noble ones. And here you can see when he talks about the cattle workers, he talks about really all they do is kind of think about their food and what they're eating which is essentially craving or greed and longing in the mind. And he's saying, okay, you know, that's not really of great fruit or benefit to be there and just kind of think about what food you're eating. That's not how he advises people to observe this particular day. And then he talks about these other aesthetics and this other community. And he talks about what they do is they basically choose to not kill other beings. So at other times, these aesthetics are willing and actually killing other beings but on this one particular day they choose not to kill living beings and then there's some other things that he shares here but then when he talks about his community of practitioners what they are working on on this particular day is cleansing the mind with effort eliminating the pollution of mind the defilements of craving anger and ignorance and the ten fetters and then he goes through a whole lot of detail and eventually gets to the point where he's going into detail about the precepts and there's eight precepts here that people will typically practice on this on this particular day there's the five precepts that are the household holders precepts that people tend to learn and practice as they go forward day by day but then on this day you know once a week essentially they're looking to kind of get closer to what an otter hunt practices and they do that on just one day and the thought that i imagine the buddha had is that if these people who are kind of practicing the five precepts and learning all the other teachings if just one day a week they can practice the eight precepts then maybe as time goes on they might actually end up practicing those for longer and longer periods of time rather than just one day because by practicing certain teachings for just one day and then kind of reverting back to kind of a a lower type of practice it's not really going to have the same effect as if you practice that long term so of course these eight precepts the first one is exactly the same as the five precepts which is not killing living beings and living compassionately for the welfare of all living beings and then the second one he's talking about you know not stealing you know waiting what is given 
these kind of things, not stealing. And then the third one, he's talking about abstaining from sexual activity entirely. Because by the time someone gets to Otterhund, they would have decided to completely eliminate sensual desire from the mind and no longer have sexual intercourse. So that's what an Otterhund, an enlightened being, is going to do. But someone who's aspiring to get to Otterhundship, maybe they're not quite ready to let go of sensual desire and sexual intercourse and that's fine you can gradually work towards that in the future you can get to that first and second stage of enlightenment still having sexual intercourse and you'll still be able to work on all the other parts of the path and then at some point in the future five years ten years twenty years who knows you might decide that okay i'd like to kind of let go of sexual intercourse now but what the buddha is teaching is that you know once a week practice this where you know that okay i'm not going to engage in sexual activity on this particular day and that can help you to gradually diminish your central desire in this case the fourth precept here is all about being a truth speaker one to be relied on and trustworthy this is exactly the same as the five precepts by the way this third precept in the five precepts is just not having sexual misconduct but in the eight precepts it's completely eliminating sexual contact altogether then the fifth precept in the five precepts is exactly the same as the eight precepts which is not indulging in having intoxicants abstaining and abandoning substances that cause heedlessness this is exactly the same for the five precepts as it is for the eighth precepts so so far the only difference between the five and the eight precepts is the third one is that for the five precepts it's not engaging in sexual misconduct for the eight precepts it's completely eliminating all sexual contact and then we go into the sixth precept which is eating once a day so this is what people practice during the lifetime of the buddha and in other parts of his teachings what he talks about is he talks about moderation of eating in other words not gorging just eating kind of in a moderate amount whereas if you gorge and you eat tons and tons and tons of food there's central desire there the mind's craving and it's putting a burden on the body to digest all this food so what he would teach is just to eat once a day as a way to kind of temper the central desire and moderate the food but this is mainly for ordained practitioners during his lifetime household practitioners particularly nowadays our levels of activity are are quite high so to eat once a day would be quite challenging because our caloric needs are are quite high so it's not that you have to absolutely eat once a day but you're going to need to moderate your food that you're not eating and gorging food putting this burden on the physical body to digest all that food and you're not operating through this central desire just craving more and more and more and more food so you can eat more than one time a day and still get to enlightenment you'll just need to moderate your food and some people might choose to eat once a day and that's something that you can do but it's not required for you to eat just one time a day it's more about moderating your food and some people say during the lifetime of the buddha that food had a higher caloric value than it does now so like a broccoli during the lifetime of the buddha had more calories than a broccoli today for example because of the quality of soil and the rain and different things like this that people think that that was maybe one of the reasons why they only ate once a day because nowadays even the ordained a lot of the ordained practitioners 
will eat twice a day because of the caloric needs of the of the body so don't feel like you have to eat just once a day but be sure that you at least moderate your food which means you might eat less less meals or smaller portions and this will tend to happen naturally as you train the mind more and more essentially what the buddha talks about around eating in this moderation of eating is he says that we should eat when there's uh, hunger pains so if there's discomfort in the body he says okay that's when you should eat rather than eating based on emotion sometimes when we're sad we're frustrated or what have you we might eat just out of emotion trying to get pleasant feelings by eating some ice cream when really the real problem is we're angry or we're sad and we're just eating ice cream to try to get those pleasant feelings back to the mind so the buddha says eat when the body is experiencing this discomfort and then as you're eating, he says, eat only enough to eliminate the discomfort. Anything else more than that is overeating. So this is where your portion sizes might need to be smaller because particularly in some countries like when I'm in America, the portion sizes are really large. So you might have to you know, cut that in half and eat smaller portions or you know, eat whatever you need in order to eliminate the hunger pains or the discomfort in the body and then whatever is left over, save that for a little bit later in the day or tomorrow or what have you. So that's what you should look at practicing for the sixth precept if you decide to move your practice up to this point. The seventh precept, the Buddha is talking about dancing, singing, instrumental music, unsuitable shows, adorning the body with beautification, wearing garlands and scents and fragrances. The first part of this, the dancing, singing, instrumental music, and unsuitable shows, this is helping once again to eliminate sensual desire, where the mind is longing and yearning for pleasure through the eyes or the ears and so forth. And then the other part where he's talking about beautification of the body and wearing garlands and scents and stuff like this, this is helping to eradicate the fetter of personal existence view. That as long as we're beautifying the body, we're wearing jewelry and garlands and putting scents, then we're identifying with this body as who we are as a person. And we're trying to project a certain self-image or a certain self-identity in the world. So by restraining the mind and eliminating dancing, singing, instrumental music and unsuitable shows, then you're training the mind that to cultivate the peacefulness and the joy internally that the mind doesn't require dancing, singing, instrumental music and shows in order to eradicate boredom or loneliness or something like this. If you observe that the mind is bored and lonely, then you've got to solve the craving, desire, attachment that's causing that. And the way that we tend to do it in the unenlightened state when we're untrained is we long and yearn for something like dancing, singing, music, or shows. So if you purge this out of your practice for a period of time, whenever you're ready to do that, you can go without TV or without radio, without driving with music, without doing what the Buddha is describing here for six months or a year and observe that the mind can actually attain peacefulness and calmness, serenity and contentedness with joy, even without these things. And then when you observe that the mind is no longer longing and yearning for these things, there's no harm in dancing or singing or listening to music, still aren't interested in unsuitable shows, which would be like, you know, pornography or 
things like that. But there's no harm in you going to watch a show, for example, like a Broadway play or, you know, maybe your child is in a in a show at school and you like to go watch that. It's when the mind is longing and yearning and craving to dance or longing, and yearning to sing or listen to music or watch shows. That's when the mind still has central desire. So the way that you eliminate the central desire is you strip out this stuff and you peel back your practice, bring it down to bare bones minimum where you're not doing these things for an extended period of time. Any loneliness or boredom or displeasure that arises in the mind over that period, then you work on that, you train the mind with meditation and other teachings. And then when you observe that you've gone an extended period of time not doing these things and the mind is getting more and more peacefulness and joy, then if you decide to start doing these things again, then then so be it. But you'll probably find that you'll do less of these things after you've trained your mind in this way than when you weren't training the mind. So you can still do these things and be enlightened, but you just need to do them without craving desire attachment. And the same thing with beautification of the body is that you can go a period of time without this beautification of the body where you're adorning the body with jewelry or scents or fragrances. For women who might wear makeup, you might choose to go without makeup for an extended period of time and do that for six months, a year, however long. And then when you observe that the mind is no longer craving to beautify the body like this, you know, in, in male as males as well, that, you know, wearing jewelry or rings or even watches or bracelets or things like this, when you purge all of that stuff out of your practice and you see for an extended period of time, you don't need that. Then when you observe that the mind is no longer craving it, then if you choose to wear a ring or you choose to, you know, wear a little bit of cologne here and there, then then so be it. But you might observe that you don't have a, an interest to do that anymore after you go for an extended period of time without it. Um, so that's what this guidance is there for. During the lifetime of the Buddha and for ordained practitioners, they wouldn't do any of these things. But for us household practitioners, we can just purge it out of our practice for a period of time. I suggest a minimum of six months, upwards of a year or so. Observe the mind. So you go through all the seasons, you go through all the, the changes in the weather and environment, and observe if there's any loneliness or boredom that comes into the mind, and then solve that through training the mind to eliminate craving, desire, attachment. Then after that period of time, if you would like to go back to doing these things, then you can go back to doing it and observe that there's no craving, desire, attachment to do these things. And then the eighth precept here, the Buddha is talking about sleeping in a higher luxurious bed. This tends to produce conceit in the mind. This is where the ego arises in the mind. So by sleeping in a low position, you're actually helping to eradicate conceit by going down into the bed and getting up out of the bed. You might decide to just put your mattress on the floor, get rid of your box spring, get rid of your frame, just put the mattress on the floor. And this is really helpful. You, this is an easy one that anybody can do at any time. And it really helps gradually over time to eradicate that arrogance and pride, the measuring and comparing, the judging of others. And this is very wise and would be very helpful for you. And 
it requires or it needs a an extended period of time. You can't just you know sleep on the floor for a week and your conceit's gone because there's other things that you're going to be doing in order to eradicate conceit, which is something we're going to be talking about in the group learning program tomorrow. So this is a real easy one in terms of putting your sleeping on the floor, not having like 15 different pillows and all these amazingly fluffy blankets, just a simple, you know, pillow or two, you know, just one blanket or so or two blankets, whatever you need to stay warm, nothing real luxurious. And this is oftentimes opposite of what you see in some cultures. Sometimes you go to the store and there's these real big high beds and all this luxury. But if you shop in a place like Thailand and you go into a furniture store, you'll see all the beds are really quite low. So if you'd like to put your mattress on the floor or you have a frame where you can put it low enough where it should be under your knee, wherever your knee is, the top of your sleeping surface should be below your knee. That's what you would like to get to. And this will help you eradicate the conceit. And the Buddha is explaining to his practitioners to do this once a week. But as I mentioned here, there's these things that you can do for extended periods of time. You don't need to do it for just one day because just one day of practicing these eight precepts isn't going to produce the transformation that you need long term. So by doing these things once a week, then it can kind of incentivize you to do them longer. But you're not going to really see the real improvement to the condition of mind until you implement these things on a long-term basis. That's what's going to gradually improve the condition of the mind. And then the Buddha talks about some other things here. I won't go into all the details unless you guys have questions. So I'll just turn this over to you guys for any questions that you might have. Okay, thank you, Teacher David. Max on Zoom asks, what about wearing an antiperspirant or deodorant? I guess there's a craving not to spell bad. Not necessarily. You can still wear that because, you know, if you smelled bad to other people with not having deodorant, you know, this can affect you and produce unwholesome gamma, right? It's a, you can choose to wear deodorant as a wise choice. You're not necessarily doing it because you're trying to project a certain image, but you're trying to ensure that the body remains healthy. You're trying to ensure that you're not affecting others. If you were at work and things like this and you were not having good hygiene, this can affect how you interact with customers, how you interact with your coworkers, and it can affect your uh, work environment. So things like that nowadays are a necessity. So you're not interested in being obsessive about it, where maybe you're putting it on five, six, eight, ten times a day. That would be obsessing about it. But, you know, putting on deodorant and ensuring that you're maintaining the hygiene of the body is a really wise thing. Okay, I'm going to head over to Miranda. Yes, sir. Uh, there's a question on Facebook, uh, really more about something in the last, the previous chapter. Uh, David Oscarme asks, hello, I am unfamiliar with the canon. What is meant by a wheel-turning monarch? Yeah, so a wheel-turning monarch is someone who's in a leadership position that's overseeing a certain population of people and they're operating this population and the, the rules that they kind of follow, the laws, based on the teachings of the Buddha. And a wheel 
is the the dhamma wheel that a buddha turns when they awaken so the buddha called these people wheel turning monarchs meaning when a buddha awakens and they turn the dhamma wheel this is a signification of civilization stepping forward because now a buddha has awoken in the world they have deep profound wisdom and they can share the teachings in such a way that countless people can get to enlightenment during their lifetime and that Buddha then leaves the teachings in such a condition that countless people can get to enlightenment after their death as well. So if there's a wheel-turning monarch, this means that they can influence, you know, 50,000 people or 100,000 people or, you know, like nowadays if we had a president that was overseeing a country, you know, millions of people, if they were leading their administration in a way based on the teachings of the Buddha, this would be very influential because now the population of people are observing as a role model this leader who is functioning in a way that is based on the teachings of the Buddha. And this is a wheel-turning monarch because they're helping civilization step forward by larger and larger groups of human beings being able to have this role model for learning and practicing these teachings and kind of observing through their conduct and the way that they make decisions. Yes, thank you, Teacher Dave. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. Uh, that's all the questions that we have for Facebook and YouTube right now, sir. I see that Max's uh, hand is up in Zoom now. Yeah, I had a question about uh, the, oh, shoot, I'm sorry, uh, the unsuitable shows would that include uh, stuff like violent movies or maybe uh, even music that is um, aggressive music or music with bad words and such? Yes, if you purge that out of your practice, your mind will be better influenced towards practicing wholesomeness. Whereas if we're listening to certain music that's very aggressive and hostile, that's going to tend to arise that type of quality in our own mind this hostility and this bitterness same thing with like a lot of really sad love songs you know music and art and shows and things like this this is designed to affect our emotions that's why you know people enjoy watching it and it can be really nice to see these kind of shows but it's when the mind is affected by it and we allow our mind to go into this depression or sadness about these love songs or we allow the music to lift the mind up into this extreme excitement and or rage or something like this, then that means the individual doesn't have control or discipline of their own mind because this music or these shows can affect our mind in a positive or negative way. So when you purge that from your practice for a period of time to be able to gain this stability and eliminate any craving or desires that we have towards those things, then someday in the future, if you happen to listen to that type of music, it's not going to affect you in the same way because you've disciplined your mind. You've got such control over it. Even though you might hear this music, it's not something that's going to create happiness or this extreme elation or thrill or euphoria. And it's not going to take you into sadness because now perhaps you're further along in your practice and you've got more control over the mind. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. It looks like we have no more questions at this time, sir. All right. So we'll go to the next chapter. Some long ones today. Chapter 75. Yes. Chapter 75. Uh, the Heavenly Beings of the Gandhava Order. Monks, 
I will teach you about the heavenly beings of the Gandhapa's order, uh, Gandhapa Yakayika heavenly being. Listen to that. And what monks are the heavenly beings of the Gandhapa order? There are monks, heavenly beings residing in fragrant roots, heavenly beings residing in fragrant heartwood, heavenly beings residing in fragrant softwood, heavenly beings residing in fragrant bark, heavenly beings residing in fragrant shoots, in fragrant leaves, in fragrant flowers, in fragrant fruits, in fragrant sap, and heavenly beings residing in fragrant scents. These monks are called the heavenly beings of the Gandhava order. All right, thank you, Rick. So here, the Buddha is just explaining where this particular group of heavenly beings are because in his teachings, he talks about these different groups of heavenly beings. And here he's just talking about the location, which are essentially in plants. And this is what was being taught at that time, that these heavenly beings exist in these various plants. There's nothing you really need to know other than that. There's nothing here that's going to teach you to eliminate discontentedness or, you know, practice right speech or any of these kind of things. This is just helping individuals understand where these heavenly beings are. And this is important for you to understand that heaven is not like some far, far distant place far away from here. It's right here, right now in the same time and space that we're in. And here the Buddha is explaining it as part of these plants, that this is where heavenly beings reside. It doesn't look like we have any questions this time, sir. All right. So we're going to get a whole bunch of chapters that are kind of in the same type of description. Okay, Miranda, will you please take this one? Yes, sir. To be reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the Gandhava order. Here, monk, someone practices wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. He has heard the heavenly beings of the Gandhava order are long-lived, beautiful, and abound in happiness. He thinks, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, May I be reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the Gandhava order. Then, with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the Gandhava order. This, monks, is the cause and reason why someone here, with the breakup of the body after death, is reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the Gandhava order. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here the Buddha is explaining that it's practicing this wholesome conduct by body, speech, and mind that leads to rebirth in the heavenly realm. And here, it's just very simple, very short, just helping us understand what leads to rebirth in that realm, in that particular group of heavenly beings. Again, the goal is not to be reborn in the heavenly realm, but the same things that lead to rebirth in the heavenly realm also lead to enlightenment. Or the other way is what leads to enlightenment, falling short of that, leads to rebirth into the heavenly realm. But the goal is to attain enlightenment in this life and not experience any rebirth in any realm whatsoever. Any questions on this chapter? Yes, sir. Um, not really just about this chapter, but just looking back at all of the times that Gautama Buddha taught about what brings about, or what can bring about rebirth in heavenly realms. Since that's not the ultimate goal, 
of our practice or of an awakeful path, is it just because that can lead to enlightenment if someone is practicing in these ways? If they practice that way for long enough, and if not, it does um, cause rebirth in the heavenly realms or in a better existence in their next rebirth. Is that why he spoke about this so often and in such detail, sir? Yeah, so, you know, one of the questions that is often asked of a teacher, you know, when you're talking about enlightenment and helping students get to enlightenment, one of the common questions is, well, what if I don't get to enlightenment in this life? Then this is the question that is asked, well, what happens? So the Buddha knows the answer to that, so he's going to share the truth of that. It seems like he's talking about it a lot because we're in this chapter about heavenly beings and he's you know talking about it over and over in each one of these chapters. But if you look at the totality of his teachings, the massive amount of 45 volumes of books, he talks about this very little in terms of what was documented. The vast majority of what he's discussing is things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, the five precepts, improving our wisdom, moral conduct, our mental discipline. So right now, because we're studying this book, and it, it's a the largest book in the in the entire book series, if you take this few chapters, you know, 15, 20 chapters or whatever it is, and you compare it to the whole totality of all the teachings in the Pali Canon, it's actually quite few. So he's explaining it because he knew the truth. His role, his objective was to share that truth. And when students ask, you know, he's going to answer. So we don't have the question here, but a student would have asked him a question and then he would have replied and answered it here. So he was only teaching based on what students asked him. You know, he didn't just say, oh, by the way, let me tell you about these heavenly beings. It was somebody that would have asked, you know, well, what happens if I don't get to enlightenment? And then he would have answered it with these various discourses that he's sharing or various answers to various questions. Yes, understood. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. Any other questions? It looks like we don't have any more questions at this time, sir. All right, we go to chapter 77. To be reborn in the company of heavenly beings who reside in fragrant roots. Here, monk, someone practices wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. He has heard the heavenly beings who reside in fragrant roots are long-lived, beautiful, and abound in happiness. He thinks, oh, with the breakup of the body, after death, may I be reborn in the company of the heavenly beings who reside in fragrant roots. He gives food, he gives drink, he gives clothing, he gives a vehicle, he gives a garland, a fragrance, an ointment, a bed, he gives a dwelling, he gives a lamp. Then with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in the company of the heavenly beings who reside in fragrant roots. This monk is the cause and reason why someone here with the breakup of the body after death is reborn in the company of the heavenly beings who reside in fragrant roots. The same teaching was spoken for each of the other groups of Grandhavas, those who reside in fragrant heartwood, uh, softwood, bark, fragrant shoots, uh, leaves, fragrant flowers, 
fragrant fruits, residing in fragrant sap, fragrant scents, each the donor of the corresponding type of gift. All right. Thank you, Rick. So here he's once again connecting generosity with rebirth in the heavenly realm. And again, that's not the goal. The goal is enlightenment. But if you're interested to know what it takes in order to get to enlightenment and what it would take to get to the heavenly realm, this is what he's sharing here to help people know what the truth is. Any questions on this? I don't see any on Zoom today, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 78. The heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. Monks, I will teach you about the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. Listen to that. And what monks are the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order? There are monks, cool cloud heavenly beings, warm cloud heavenly beings, storm cloud heavenly beings, wind cloud heavenly beings, and rain cloud heavenly beings. These monks are called the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. Okay, thank you, Miranda. So here again, the Buddha is explaining the location of where the heavenly beings are. And this is another group of heavenly beings. The first group we've been talking about are residing in plants. These are residing in the clouds. So he's just explaining the location. Again, there's nothing here that's going to help you eliminate discontentedness. But if you were ever curious of where are the heavenly beings, he's explaining to you the exact location. Any questions on this? None in Zoom, sir. All right. So we'll go to chapter 79. Okay. To be reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. Here, monk, someone practices wholesome conduct of body, speech, and mind. He has heard the heavenly beings in the cloud residing order are long-lived, beautiful, and abound in happiness. He thinks, oh, with the breakup of the body after death, may I be reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. He gives food, he gives drink, he gives clothing, a vehicle, a garland, a fragrance. He gives an ointment, a bed, a dwelling. He gives a lamp. Then with the breakup of the body after death, he is reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. This monk is the cause and reason why someone here with the breakup of the body after death is reborn in the company of the heavenly beings of the cloud residing order. All right. Thank you, Rick. Once again, connecting generosity with rebirth into the heavenly realm in this particular order of heavenly beings. So what questions do you guys have on this chapter? Miranda has a question, and Max has a question. So go ahead, Miranda. Thank you, Rick. Um, yes, on Facebook, Chris Rice asks, it almost seems like less sentient beings, less aware beings, such as plants, experience greater levels of bliss. Is that accurate, or am I misunderstanding the suttas, sir? Yeah, so the Buddha is not saying that the plants are living beings. They don't actually have the five aggregates to be a living being. The five aggregates are form, feelings, perceptions, volitional formations, which are choices and decisions, and consciousness. So the plants themselves aren't the being, but what he was describing earlier is the heavenly beings reside in the plants. And these 
different beings have different orders, certain lifespan, certain beauty, certain amount of happiness, and so forth and so on. So you are reading that properly and understanding that properly. Just ensure that you understand that the plants themselves aren't the living beings. So the form is the physical form. I think you understand feelings. The perceptions are the way things seem to be. It's kind of like our opinions and our views of things, which a plant doesn't have an opinion or a view about anything. They also don't have volitional formations or choices and decisions. They can't choose to pick themselves up, walk down the street and replant themselves. And that's because they don't have the fifth aggregate, which is the consciousness or the mind. But these heavenly beings, the way the Buddha is explaining it is they reside in the plants themselves. Thank you, sir. Mm -hmm. You're welcome. So it talks about, uh, maybe I misunderstood or whatnot, but it talks about giving fragrances to, uh, as a gift or whatnot, but as a practitioner, we wouldn't use fragrances. Did I misunderstand? So as a household practitioner, you can use whatever you like you know it's everything even an ordained practitioner it's our own choices and decisions that bring our mind to enlightenment here if you're going to use a fragrance or like a perfume or a cologne or something like that just understand that this can be because of central desire it can also be because of projecting a certain self-image having that personal existence view so what would be advisable is if you're currently using like perfume or cologne, not deodorant, but perfume or cologne, that you go for a period of time without that and train the mind that you don't require that in order to go out into the world and to be peaceful and calm and joyful and so forth. And then at some point, you know, after a year or two or what have you, you might choose to start using a fragrance again, but you know that you've eliminated the craving for it because the mind is no longer longing and yearning for it. You no longer are ha having this personal existence view, for example. So here, the offering that he's talking about is that, you know, people offer food, drink, clothing, a vehicle, which is actually, you know, transportation, a garland, which is something to put on the body, a fragrance, an ointment, which is essentially medicine, gives bed this is like um you know a place to sleep you know like a mat or something a dwelling is a place to sleep you know for a period of time and then a lamp you know probably an oil lamp or something like this a candle in order for them to read so these offerings can be made but then whether somebody chooses to use it or not is based on their own personal practice so these are things that can be given and can be a gift. So for example, if somebody offered me a fragrance, I would accept the, the offering, but I don't use perfumes or colognes or things like that. So I would just give it to somebody else and then allow that person or somebody else, maybe they give it to somebody, they give it to somebody. Eventually it would find a home and somebody would end up using that fragrance that is still using fragrances. Um, same thing with a garland. If somebody gave me any kind of jewelry or any kind of thing to beautify the body, I would accept the offering, but then I would just give it to somebody else because it's not something that I would use for my own practice. So these things can be offered, but then whether an individual practitioner chooses to use it or not is up to them in their practice. 
typically as you get to know your teacher and you know the things that they eat or the things that they drink or the type of clothes that they wear and so forth, you tend to offer things that you know that they can use. And that's part of getting to know your teacher and being around them that you know the things that they use in their daily life and you might offer them those things. So we can use fragrances and uh, so forth just as long as the mind isn't attached to uh, like beautifying the body. Is that understood correctly? I don't think of it as like we can do this because when we use that kind of language, it sounds like there's like rules. And if we follow these rules, we get to enlightenment. If we don't follow these rules, we don't get to enlightenment. And that's not the way that the Buddha taught this. So I think of it as if you would like to use a fragrance, you know, use a fragrance. And that might be what you are doing right now. But in order to ensure that there's no personal existence view there, and that there's no central desire, so there's no craving and clinging to this fragrance, I would suggest going for a period of time, minimum six months, you know, upwards of a year or so, without using this fragrance. And then through observing that you are not using it for six months, a year, two years, or what have you, and you observe that the mind is not longing and yearning for this any longer, if you choose to start using a fragrance again, go for it. You can use a fragrance and still get to enlightenment, but it would be wise and advisable to go an extended period of time without a fragrance so that you know that the mind is not longing and yearning and craving it. The the surefire way to know that your mind isn't craving to use a fragrance is to go without it for an extended period of time. And then by stripping your practice down like that, then you can observe the mind and how it is functioning without the fragrance for an extended period of time. And should you go back to it, then you can have the confidence that your mind isn't attached to it because you went a year or two years or three years without using any kind of fragrance or anything like that. Thank you, sir, for clarifying. I understand. You're welcome. Any other? Looks like we don't any more questions this time, sir. Okay, so then the last chapter for today is chapter 80. Miranda, would you like to take that one? Yes, sir. The agreeable-bodied heavenly beings. Here, venerable sir, I had gone off to pass the day and was in seclusion when a number of agreeable-bodied heavenly beings approached me, paid homage, respect to me, stood to one side and said to me, Venerable sir Anuruddha, we agreeable-bodied heavenly beings exert mastery and exercise control over three things. We immediately acquire whatever color we want. We immediately acquire whatever pleasure we want. And we immediately acquire whatever voice we want. Venerable sir, how many qualities should a woman possess so that, with the breakup of the body after death, she is reborn in companionship with the agreeable-bodied heavenly beings? If she possesses eight qualities on Aruda, a woman with the breakup of the body after death is reborn in companionship with the agreeable body of heavenly beings. What eight? One, here on Aruda, to whichever husband her parents give her, doing so out of a desire for her good, seeking her welfare, taking compassion on her, acting out of compassion for her, a woman rises before him and retires after him, undertaking whatever needs to be done, agreeable in her conduct and pleasing in her speech. 
Two, she honors, respects, admires, and venerates those whom her husband respects, his mother and father, ascetics and Brahmins, and when they arrive, she offers them a seat and water. Three, she is skillful and diligent in attending to her husband's domestic chores, whether knitting or weaving. She possesses sound judgment about them in order to carry out and arrange them properly. Four, she finds out what her husband's domestic helpers, whether slaves, messengers, or workers, have done and left undone. She finds out the condition of those who are ill, and she distributes to each an appropriate portion of food. Five, she guards and protects whatever income her husband brings home, whether money, grain, silver, or gold. And she is not a spendthrift, thief, wastrel, or squanderer of his earnings. Six, she is a female household practitioner who has gone for refuge to the Buddha, the teachings, and the community. Seven, she is virtuous, practicing moral conduct, abstaining from the destruction of life, taking what is not given, sexual misconduct, false speech, and liquor, wine, intoxicants, substances that cause heedlessness, the basis for heedlessness. Eight, she is generous, one who resides at home, a heart free of the stain of selfishness, freely generous, open-handed, delighting in letting go, devoted to charity, delighting in giving and sharing. Possessing these eight qualities, Anuruddha, a woman with the breakup of the body after death, is reborn in companionship with the agreeable body heavenly beings. She does not despise her husband, the man who constantly supports her, who is dedicated and eagerly always brings her whatever she needs. Nor does a wholesome woman scold her husband with feet caused by jealousy. The wise woman shows veneration to all those whom her husband admires. She rises early, works diligently, manages the domestic health. She treats her husband in agreeable ways and safeguards the wealth he earns. The woman who fulfills her duties thus, following her husband's will and wishes, is reborn among the heavenly beings called the agreeable ones. All right. Thank you, Miranda. So here we have a chapter, a teaching where someone has asked a question about how a female can be reborn into the heavenly realm. And the Buddha is explaining things based on the culture and the time frame that was going on in that lifetime of how this individual can be reborn into a heavenly realm. And there's other places where he teaches males, you know, so it depends on who's asking what question. Some of these things, as you can see, are things that, you know, we no longer practice in terms of, you know, whichever husband her parents give her, right? You know, I guess during this lifetime that the parents would, you know, kind of allow a certain husband or maybe give them to this husband. You know, nowadays, you know, husband and wife tend to, or husband and husband, a wife, wife tend to make choices on their own and they decide, you know, where they're going to marry and who they're going to marry and so forth. But what you should look at here is what the Buddha is really describing. And this can actually be applied for males and females. It's not just for females, but males and females looking at, you know, this interest to do good this you know seeking welfare and taking compassion on her acting out of compassion for her a woman rises before him and retires after him this is more of you know kind of the woman is kind of like the manager of the household the way it sounds where today a lot of 
couples, whether it's a, you know a man and a woman or a man and a man or a woman and a woman living together, they're going to maybe share in these duties. And there's not this requirement for one person to awake before another person. It's more of shared responsibilities. And there are some other things like that, too, is where, you know, she honors, respects, admires, and venerates those whom her husband respects. Essentially, what this is, is, you know, if you have a partner and, you know, of course, you would like to honor and respect in the mother and father of your partner, any aesthetics or teachers or Brahmin people that your partner is admiring or respecting or honoring, this is really helpful in the household that if your partner has certain teachers and you were bad mouthing them or talking bad about them this is going to cause conflict in the home or if you were gossiping and bad mouthing about their mother and their father this would cause conflict in the home so what the buddha is advising here is that you know a partner should honor respect admire and venerate the same people as your partner and and you know build healthy relationships with those people because you know all too often nowadays you know we're taught that it's proper to kind of hate your in-laws right and whoever is your mother-in-law or father-in-law you're supposed to have this contentious relationship with them and that's kind of like been the norm and what people kind of expect and that's not going to promote a a peaceful and harmonious home so what the buddha is saying is you know don't practice that practice this which is what he's sharing and then when those people come to visit He's saying, okay, you know, offer them a seed and offer them some water. This is very common here in Thailand that whenever guests come over to your home, you offer them a seed and somebody's going to go get them water. Here in Thailand, it's typically the children that go and get your guests water. But if they're not around, you know, the person who's in the home is going to get their guests a glass of water to make them feel welcome. And, you know, they just came in from outside. It's It's hot. You know, you don't have to say, would you like a glass of water? Here in Thailand, we just go get it and bring it. Just offer it uh, without even asking. And then the third one here is being skillful and diligent and attending to her husband's domestic chores. This is essentially, again, the woman kind of fulfilling a certain role in that time frame and that culture. Nowadays, we really share in these things. We don't necessarily have one person doing you know, the household duties and then another person, you know, not necessarily participating in those. Nowadays, we tend to kind of share in those duties. And then the fourth one here is, again, it sounds very much like the wife was kind of like the manager of the home and kind of taking care of all the workers that were there to tend to the home. And again, this is more of a shared responsibility that we have here. But one thing to really note is that it's really wise that if you're a worker, say you're a boss and you're, or you're an employer, somebody who has people working for you, when your employees are sick or they're ill, do things to show that, you're, that you care. Whether you go visit them in the hospital, whether you send them flowers or gifts, or whether you take them food, uh, whether you call them on the phone, this is a really important time to show your care and your compassion. And if we're being good bosses and employers we should be practicing good wholesome moral conduct with our employees at all times but particularly when they're sick it's an ideal time to help that individual show that you're concerned about them and that you're going to help them to regain their health and that's something that's really wise that the buddha is sharing here 
here, you know, talking about not spending your partner's money, you know, as your partner is making money, of course, we're going to need to spend money and maybe we have shared expenses and so forth and so on. But if we're, you know, just haphazardly spending money and not really paying attention to what we're spending money on, this can cause conflict in the home uh, when you're uh, living with your partner. If people are making money and we're just spending it without any thought or any tension behind it, this can create conflict and difficulties in our home. And then if both partners are practicing the teachings, this is something we talked about in the group learning program last week, where if you're learning and practicing the teachings individually because you're on your own path to enlightenment, but then as, a, as the home is being operated, if you understand the teachings of the Buddha, and everybody's working on practicing these, then you can support and encourage each other along the path. So having the confidence that the Buddha was enlightened, that his teachings are very helpful, and that this community of practitioners that you're part of is being supportive and encouraging for you, this can really help you in your home if both partners are functioning in this way. And the Buddha talks here about the five precepts, ensuring that we're practicing the five precepts. This is for both partners because if we're not practicing the five precepts and we're in a partner relationship, it's going to affect the other person. So if there's two partners and one person's practicing the five precepts and another's not, meaning the other person is killing, stealing, having sexual misconduct, having lies or taking substances that cause heedlessness, it's going to affect this other person. So by both people in the relationship choosing to practice the five precepts, there's going to be wholesome results. Because when we're not practicing the five precepts, we're causing harm in the world. So harm's going to come back to us. So let's just say one partner's practicing the five precepts and the other's out there stealing. Well, when that partner gets arrested, for example, and they go away to jail and they're no longer earning money, that's going to put strain on the household. It's going to have difficulties. Or if one partner is lying or taking substances that cause heedlessness, this is going to cause complications in that partner's life, which is going to affect your partner. So to be a good partner, if we practice making wise decisions around the five precepts, then we know that we're not causing harm to others. So therefore, harm's not going to come to us or our partner. So this is a way to honor and respect the relationship by ensuring that we're making wise decisions around our own moral conduct. And then when we practice generosity as an individual, and then also this is going to benefit us as a couple, that if one person is practicing generosity and the other one's kind of you know, selfish or stingy, not interested in sharing or, or giving, uh, this is going to affect your relationships together with each other and outside your home as well. And you can learn to practice generosity with each other. You know, if you're picking up something at the store for yourself, maybe you're going to the store to buy yourself a smoothie. Maybe you buy one for your partner as well. Or you're going to, you know, buy a little snack for yourself, you know, buy one for your partner as well. Or maybe your partner is oftentimes buying you dinner or lunch or making you breakfast. Maybe sometimes do that for them as well. That's their karma to come back to them. So by practicing generosity outside the home with others and within the home, this creates an environment where people are freely giving and sharing, removing this stain of selfishness that the Buddha is describing. And this creates really healthy relationships when 
you know, food just shows up. It's like, oh, wow, you know, my wife or my husband, uh, my partner chose to bring me some food. This is wonderful. You know, thank you so much. Or get you a little gift. You know, it, it just warms the heart when you see that your partner took the time to do these kind of things. So by practicing this in the home with each other, you'll find that your relationships will be really warm and loving this way. What questions do you guys have on this chapter? Miranda, I'll let you take that. Thank you, Rick. Um, yes, sir. On Facebook, Chris Rice has a couple of questions here about this chapter. Does this suda imply that there are clear gender roles that are almost universal? Which I think you answered in your teachings, sir. Yeah, during the lifetime of the Buddha, it it's very clear that you know men performed certain roles and women women performed certain roles in the home. But this isn't necessarily how we do things now because of impermanence, things have changed. And the Buddha was teaching in that time and place around helping women or helping men. You can see where he teaches and helps men, where he helps daughters and he helps sons and he uh, does this kind of thing. And what I've observed about his teachings is they really hold true for all genders. So at the beginning of each book, there's a I can't remember if it's in the preface or if it's just kind of a, a special area that I put in the book. I explained that in certain discourses, the Buddha might be talking to a male about male roles. He might be talking to a female about female roles. But as you saw how I just taught that, these same teachings that he's sharing during his lifetime for a woman could be easily applied to a man today as well. That you know, it's not just the woman that needs to be practicing these. Or if you see a discourse where he's teaching a man, it's not just the man that needs to be practicing those. It's a partner that is practicing these things is going to be experiencing more peacefulness and harmony in the home. So today we can apply all genders or no gender at all. Sometimes people don't identify with either gender, male or female. So any kind of types of ways that we refer to each other, we can apply these teachings in our life and experience lots of benefit and harmony and peacefulness in our relationships. Thank you, sir. Um, he also asks, these suttas mention giving vehicles to contemplatives or ordained practitioners, but in the past I thought monks only walked. What vehicles were the suttas referring to and how would the monks use them? What I suspect that they're referring to is a ride or transportation. I don't suspect that the ordained practitioners were actually given, like uh, during that time, it would have been a horse and a cart, right? That would have been what the transportation would have been. I don't think that they offered horses and carts because there's places in the Buddhist teachings where he advises the ordained practitioners not to accept living beings as an offering. So I feel that what this translation is, is it's referring to a ride. So if an ordained practitioner was walking down the street and somebody was like, hey, where are you going? Oh, I'm going to the next town, you know, five kilometers away. Oh, hop in, you know, I'll give you a ride. And that's the, the vehicle or the transportation. Same thing happens here today in Thailand. You know, you can see monks walking down the street and there's occasions where people will pull over and say, hey, where are you going? Where, you know, can I give you a ride? And they might say yes, they might say no. They might be 
choosing to walk for any particular reason. So I feel that that's what they're referring to when they're saying vehicle, not actually ownership of the vehicle, but actual transportation from one point to the other. Same thing with where he's describing a dwelling. The offerings weren't the actual dwelling itself, like here's a house, you know, ordained practitioner, go live in this house because they've given up ownership of any kind of dwelling. Instead, it's, you know, oh, would you like to have a place to sleep? You know, come sleep for a week at my at my place. You know, you're welcome to to reside here for the next week. Um, and the Buddha actually gave descriptions around that where he says, you know, he advises ordained practitioners not to reside anywhere longer than I think it's about four months. And if you're going to stay longer than that, there needs to be a renewed invitation because he wasn't interested in, you know, the ordained practitioners wearing out their welcome, so to speak, you know. So typically, if a ordained practitioner nowadays is going to reside somewhere, they're going to reside in a temple. But there's sometimes times where they might travel and somebody might offer them a place to stay for a period of time. Or like if I came to America for teaching, someone might say, oh, David, you're welcome to come stay in my house for a week. And then be like, oh, okay, you know, sure. You know, I'd, I'd uh, be pleased to stay here. So you can offer someone a dwelling, uh, which would be a place to reside or offer someone transportation to go from one place to the other. And that's where this translation of vehicle is coming from. Yes, thank you, Teacher David. You're welcome. Um, he also asked. He also asked earlier uh, a question that didn't really pertain to any particular chapter. Um, are there any benefits of becoming an, an ordained practitioner versus a household practitioner? Yeah, there's pros and cons to both. So in the ordained life, it's a very strict, kind of rigid uh, discipline. You uh, have a lot of people around you that are on the path. You're living in a community of people that are interested in progressing on the path. So there's lots of resources typically to be able to learn and practice. And there's people that are deeply interested and dedicated to doing that. And there's this very strict discipline and there's this environment for you to learn and practice because you're not working in a career, for example. And also, all your possessions have been completely shrunk down to just two robes and a bowl, essentially, is what you have. And the life of an ordained practitioner is such that there's less opportunity for the mind to have attachment and to have craving because you're not having a boyfriend, girlfriend, husband, wife. You're not involved with your children and things like this. So there's improved ability to potentially get to enlightenment because of the, the environment that you're in. But also it's quite strict and some people you know, struggle with that. And then in the household life, life is more wide open and there's much more temptation and much more desires that the mind can potentially have. So in the household life, there needs to be more inner discipline, where in the ordained life, there still needs to be a certain discipline, but that tends to get kind of baked into your lifestyle because you're sleeping on the floor, you're around all these very dedicated people, you're going to be checking in with your teacher probably weekly, 
where you're going to see the master teacher, you know, every day, you're going to probably see the master teacher in the morning, in the evening when you're doing meditation together. But there's also going to be personal guidance kind of weekly or every two weeks that you're checking in with your master teacher, where in the household life, you have to build that discipline in yourself where you actively read, where you actively meditate, where you actively reach out to your teacher for help. There's not this massive community around you that you're just you know, coming into this community where there's meditation twice a day, where there's, you know, active involvement with your master teacher and so forth. So you need to create that inner discipline for yourself. And the mind has more opportunity for it to get attached, particularly in relationships or particularly with sensual desire. So there needs to be this real discipline in learning how to do things like love without attachment, which is what we talked about in the group learning program last week. So there's pros and cons to both. If you do attain enlightenment in the ordained life, you can remain ordained or some people unordain after they attain enlightenment. If you're in the household life and you attained enlightenment, then there's no longer, you know, living with these strict rules and uh, or the strict guidance that is kind of practiced in the in a lot of the temples. So Attaining enlightenment in the household life is more challenging, but once you attain it, then you have a lot more flexibility about what you can do. So for example, like when I share about not listening to music and watching certain shows and dancing and so forth and singing, and I talk about, you know, you can restrain the mind from doing that for a period of time. And then once you realize that the mind is no longer craving those things, you can always introduce it back in. Where in an ordained lifestyle, you don't have that option. You know, they're not listening to music. They're not dancing. They're not singing. You know, they're really strict about what they are doing and what they aren't doing because they're creating this environment that's more conducive to attaining enlightenment. Where in the household life, you need to understand these things and understand how they're beneficial and then create that for yourself with your own inner discipline and being sure that you reach out for guidance and instruction and be sure that you're meditating regularly and you're learning the teachings regularly, going to classes, reading books, watching videos, podcasts, things like this. So that's what it really comes down to is more of an environment that's conducive to enlightenment versus you needing to have the inner discipline to create that environment for yourself. That would be the difference between ordained practitioners and household practitioners. Thank you, sir. You're welcome. There are no other questions on Facebook or YouTube at this time, sir. And no other questions on Zoom at this time, sir. All right. Well, I'll thank all of you guys for participating in today's class. Uh, Rick and Miranda, thank you guys for reading. Maybe in the future we can have some more people that will volunteer to read. If you guys would like, that would be really wonderful. And uh, next week on Saturday, we're going to be going into the next 10 chapters. So we're going to be in chapter 81 through 90. So we're now more than halfway through this book of volume 11. So we'll just finish out the rest of this book up to uh, chapter 150-ish around there. And then we'll be moving into the next book as well after that. So you can read these chapters 81 through 90 prior to class. That'll help you prepare, think about, reflect, maybe even start to practice some of the teachings that you're seeing. And then you may have questions of things that you'd like clarification on as you come to class next week. 
If you'd like to attend the group learning program tomorrow on Sunday, we're going to be in Volume 1, Chapter 16, which is titled Dissolving the Ego. Ego serves no purpose. This is where you're going to learn about this word ego that we're using and how the Buddha taught to eliminate it through eliminating personal existence view, which is one of the fetters, and eliminating conceit. So I'm going to go into explaining what each of these fetters are in detail, explain to you the problems that you're going to encounter and you have encountered as a result of these two fetters, and then I'm going to explain to you how to eliminate these two fetters from the mind. This will ultimately help you eliminate the ego, which tends to be very challenging for some people and it's good to kind of get ahead of the curve and kind of work on this early on in your practice so that wherever these are arising you can work on eliminating them and then on wednesday we're going to be doing loving kindness meditation together in our wednesday class so thank you all for joining for the live class anybody who's watching this on the replay or listening on the podcast thank you for your dedication and your diligence to learning and practicing we'll see you in a future class have a very wonderful and lovely rest of your day thank you for listening to this podcast to provide support for this podcast visit patreon.com forward slash support buddha to access more teachings visit buddhadailywisdom.com There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.